On this episode, I talk with Dr. Daniela Hirschfeld. Dr. Hirschfeld and I discuss coastal erosion as a spatial problem and how it is approached by environmental planning. Dr. Hirschfeld brings me through the different ways to visualize sea level rise and how, in order to plan for the future, we must make the best forward-looking choices today. Okay, so hi, Daniela. Um, you're joining us here from Utah. You're a professor of landscape architecture and environmental planning at Utah State University. Um, and I was just wondering if you could explain quickly, like, what does this, what is landscape architecture and environmental planning? What is this field? How did you come to it? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to explain that. Uh, Landscape architecture and environmental planning is, on the one hand, an integrated field with two different approaches. Uh, landscape architecture is very much an approach about designing sites and regions. Environmental planning, at its really core, is about developing ways and enabling society to be proper stewards of the world's natural resources, and at the same time, using an understanding of natural processes to ensure that the human built environment is safe, um, habitable, a healthy place for citizens. So planners are really focused on spatial understanding, not just a governance context. And they work with, they work by bringing together a variety of disciplines. Environmental planners will work in ecology, sociology, public policy, economics. So they really work to bring these different disciplines together in order to create spaces and places that are healthy for humans as well as for other species. So yeah, that's wonderful. So you're a professor, do you work with governments? Do you typically teach? Do you do practical field work? Like what does this entail? Yeah. Uh, it entails all of those things for <laughs> me. Uh, I love being a teacher and I teach studio classes as well as more science-based classes, like a landscape ecology class, mm. where students learn to look at data about the landscape and understand and analyze it. Um, I also, I have 10 years of practice-based experience where I worked with local governments, state governments on a variety of different projects, some of which were land use plans, some of which were, I helped to create a rating system um, determining whether or not a city is sustainable or not sustainable mm. and how sustainable they are. So I've worked in the practice realm as well. And I really helped to bring, bridge that gap between academia where everything is sitting in books and a real world context where um, things are happening. This past semester, my students worked with a um, with a county specifically designing a greenway network. So um, it was a class and it was taught, but it was also this bridging where they were able to provide a product to the county and say, here's where your green systems should be. Yeah, that feels like the, the most exciting thing I feel like in environmental kind of academic settings is we get to do that kind of bridged practice or like field work where you're feeling like you're actually you know, interacting with different practitioners and things like that. Um, 
So did you work when you were doing that kind of practice on the East Coast in California? Did you start anywhere in particular? Yeah. Yeah, so um, I've I've worked on both coasts. I did my master's at Duke in environmental management. And after that, I had a NOAA Coastal Zone Management Fellowship where NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, places fellows uh, with state agencies. And so it was placed with the Massachusetts Coastal Zone Management Agency. And I worked there for two full years. Um, Massachusetts is a home rule state, which means that the state agency doesn't have a lot of authority. The local governments have a lot of authority and the state agency's role is primarily to enable local government work. And so my role was to partner with local governments in the state of Massachusetts and help them develop climate adaptation, hazard mitigation work and efforts. So I helped to write a floodplain bylaw for the town of Oak Bluffs. I worked with Mm -hmm. the town of Hull. Um, They created an incentive program to help citizens and encourage citizens to do something called freeboard for their homes, which uh, for those who don't know, freeboard is helping to elevate homes above the current flood line. Mm -hmm. So if you imagine that there is a a flood line that is projected saying this is the the level at which the water would come were there to be a flood event, but there's there's some uncertainty in that height. And so Freeboard is saying, let's build a little bit above that height, um, in this case, up to three feet above the future flood levels. And that would allow homes to have some flexibility and greater longevity. Yeah, I feel like we're seeing that kind of elevation of homes in a lot of different coastal places now, like North Carolina, you know, the eastern seaboard, California, even I saw a few of those elevated homes. It seems like people are starting to really put that into place. Yeah, there's um, what's interesting about it is there's a long history of doing it. One of the mm-hmm. struggles is that if you're building that freeboard, so you may see homes that look like they are elevated, mm-hmm. but depending on the amount of storm surge, they may only be elevated to a past projected sea level and not a future oh. projected sea level. So it's hard to know when you're just driving down the road, looking at the homes, if you see them elevated, that may be a minimum requirement, or it may be an additional freeboard factor that's being put in. That's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And you were talking about a kind of projection that work you were doing. Is that something that a lot of environmental planners do? Is that kind of like ranking system or projection into the future of where you see, say, something like sea level rise, you know, where that flood line is going to be in the future and how to plan around that? And I was just wondering how planners, if they do this, make those kinds of projections. That's an excellent question. Typically, planners will work with the scientists. So planners aren't usually the ones who would make the future projections. There is a lot of, um, specifically in the climate space, there's a lot of future projections that are being produced. NOAA has one that came out in 2017. There is a model in California that's referred to as OCOF. and Patrick Barnard and his team out of the USGS developed that one. There's another model that John Radke, who I worked with at Berkeley developed. So there's a lot of models that are being developed and typically planners, environmental planners 
we'll work with those models and then work on more of a translation service of saying, okay, now that we have this modeling information, how do we translate it into costs or how do we understand it in terms of site design? So it's more of a translation service than a modeling service that planners will, um, will play. The other thing that planners will often do is come up with a process or a framework for doing that planning work. So a lot of climate adaptation planning is now using um, dynamic adaptation pathways. And so that would be a planner's contribution would be coming up with a dynamic way of thinking about these futures as opposed to the person who does the modeling itself. That's really interesting. Yeah, I'm, I guess that leads me to one of my questions, which I love is what brought you to this field? Because it seems like you've worked in a lot of different disciplines um, before even getting to environmental planning. So I'm just wondering what brought you to this field and also, you know, what brought you to our topic, which is coastal erosion, but sea level rise or coasts, what brought you to that topic or your interest in that? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I'd say that my path has not been linear. Uh, it's been a rather circuitous path. Um, most simply what brought me to it is that I've always loved being outside. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved the environment from a remarkably young age. I remember more of a conservation ethic in myself that I remember when my father would be brushing his teeth. I would go and turn off the water because I couldn't oh, wow. tolerate the waste of that particular resource. And I just, I don't even actually know where that came from. I just always remember having it. Um, more specifically though, when I was in college, I went on a Knowles trip, which is the Nas- mm-hmm. National Outdoor Leadership School. And I spent 75 days in the outback of Australia. And that was really a turning point in my life, a realization that I always wanted to do work that was connected to the environment, connected to our natural resources. And then it took me a few years to land in the environmental planning field specifically. I worked in conservation work in Nevada for a little while, and then I went back and got this master's degree in environmental management. And that was really the beginning of my working career in environmental concerns. And that was where I landed in Massachusetts, working with the Coastal Zone Management Agency. And I'd say that's where I really came to understand the spatial concerns and that management itself is not spatially specific. And I really wanted to add the spatial component. And so I went back to Berkeley and got a PhD in environmental planning, where I was able to bring together all these different ways of thinking and put them into a very concrete spatial context. That's so interesting. Would you the say, one, sorry. Oh, I was just going to add that I realized I didn't mention, but one of the other things that really brought me to the coast is that I grew up with a home on the coast of Long Island. Mm. And I just always remembered loving being at the beach. Uh, I mean, I loved waves and while I loved them, I also had a, a healthy fear of them. One of the things my mom likes to tell is the story of me explaining to her why I was afraid of the waves. And what she says is I was afraid of the waves because I realized that they had made rocks into sand. And so I sort of always had this love of being there and and the beauty, but also a respect for the power of nature and what it can do. It's so interesting because I feel like this is something I've been talking to a few different people about recently is... Uh, especially those working with oceans, and I do work in oceanic studies and literature, 
so much of it is framed around this like love of the ocean or the wonder it evokes. And it's kind of funny how many people who like really love this space also have that healthy fear of it. Because in my own experience, like thinking about to my childhood, I loved playing in the water and I loved kayaking and things like that. But I was also terrified of like capsizing a kayak and being in the water or I swam a lot, but was still kind of terrified at the same time. And I guess one of my questions is like, did that kind of healthy fear of oceanic spaces um, factor into your work on sea level rise at all? Because I feel like one of the funny things with framing study of oceans these days is, you know, that kind of fear of flooding, of rising tides, of homes getting swept away, and how to kind of incorporate that with the same healthy love for the space. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that part of the wonder and the awe that we all relate to and connect with is that there is a tremendous power um, and, part, and, and vastness. And those pieces come together in a way that can also conjure an element of fear. You know, you stand on the sea edge and you stand out there and, and you look out and it's just, it's endless. And I think that conjures this recognition that it can, in fact, overpower anything that humanity has put there because the vastness is so great, um, which is different than most riverine environments or other water environments. You know, if you're at a lake's edge, yeah, it's kind of big, but it's not the same scale of big as an ocean. Yeah. So in your recent work, you've been doing um, like environmental infrastructural planning around sea level rise. You're talking about the vastness of the space. How do you plan for something like sea level rise, which is going to be so vast? It's going to be a global issue. It's going to be a worldwide issue. What kind of work have you been doing recently on sea level rise and how can that you know, play into a smaller scale space versus maybe a larger scale? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, I've been really lucky to have my work span a variety of different scales. Mm -hmm. So um, most recently, my biggest project is actually working at that global scale. Uh, I am currently co-leading a research project looking at what science is being used by local planners. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really interesting project because on the one hand, it's global. We have uh, currently, we have 325 responses across the globe. The survey that we're conducting is in eight different languages. Uh, so it really is a truly global project. And yet we're looking most predominantly at local planners. And so these are people who are in charge of a specific city. Um, and those cities range in scale. You know, we have responses from New York City and we have a response from Oak Bluffs and Martha's Vineyard. You couldn't get, you know, more wide ranging in terms of the U.S. in terms of scale. And so it's a really fascinating research project to be looking at those two different, both a global project as well as at local scale. Uh, the long term goal of that particular research is really thinking about how do we better enable what's called climate services to help support local decision makers. And so using the global power of 
data that's gathered everywhere and using the global brain power to think about that and yet working really hard to bring in the practitioners and those who are going to be using the information in order to guide climate services and make sure that there's um, a really good intersection between what local people need and what's available and plausible at that global, at what local people need, but what's available and plausible at the global scale. Uh, so that's one, one way that I go about it. Some of the other projects that I've done, I had a piece that was recently published in the journal Environment, Environmental Science and Policy. And in that context, I was looking at regions and how regions collaborate with each other and uh, um, governance questions of what is the capacity of those regions to address these challenges. So that's another way I see of bridging these scales where the regions themselves I'm speaking of is the Bay Area, so it's nine counties, uh, San Diego, which is five counties, uh, the North Coast of California, which had four counties in it. So it's, you know, again, not a tremendously large scale, and yet it was done for the Ocean Protection Council, which is a state agency, and they were able to take that information and start to think about how they would better support those different regions. Yeah, that's that's reminding me of what you were talking about um, in terms of translating, like the uh, how environmental planners and people in your field are really trying to translate between, you know, the sciences and say policy or those kind of disparate fields. Do you feel like this is kind of a newer move, I guess, or a new move? Do you feel like more people are interested in that kind of translation work? Or do you feel like, you know, this is something that's happened for a long time, but climate change just brings it more to the fore? So yeah, is this kind of like wide scale bringing together different, you know, data sets and really trying to translate it into one, you know, manageable thing, kind of a newer, a more new move. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd say it's both. Okay. Uh, there, in the last 15 years, even since when I started my master's degree, the availability of spatial data and the processing power allows for analyses that, that weren't, that couldn't necessarily be done previously, uh, you know, being able to download the entire United States at a small resolution and yet have the full U.S. is something that just much more available. So in that sense, the data is increasing and there's um, more capacity, you know, and yet I would also say that there's always been an interest in bringing science into policy there's always been those efforts to bring those things together. I think there is a greater capacity today. And I think in that sense, there's, and there's a greater capacity. I think there is a growing awareness of climate change. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's just, this, although the field and the knowledge has been, I mean, climate change science started in the 1850s. It's been mm -hmm. around a very, very long time, but the degree of awareness, the number of youth growing up, um, really advocating in the movement, um, you know, I think really forcing change as we, you know, from pro what is the, the Friday 
you are you aware of the, yeah, the Friday the protests? The, yeah. The, yeah, the Friday, Friday strikes strike. for climate. And yeah. um, I think there's just, there is more and more awareness and that awareness is going to force policy to address these concerns and these threats. Yeah, that's been a really exciting thing, I think, in the last few years is seeing that kind of, you know, general public push for these things that have been in conversation for so long. So I guess another question is, are there any barriers or walls that you hit in your work because of this topic, because of climate change? Or do you feel like there's this interest right now that actually a lot of the barriers that were there before aren't there anymore? Uh, there are definitely barriers. Uh, I would say that professionally, my biggest barrier is often that my work is very interdisciplinary, mm -hmm. which can make it really hard for in academia for people who are like, oh, you have to be in this bucket or you have to be in this bucket or you have to be in this bucket. It makes it really hard for them to understand my work and for me to spend time justifying and explaining my work. Mm -hmm. So that's a personal professional challenge that even translates into then how do I get funding? Do I get funding from an engineering grant making entity? Do I get funding from a public policy making entity? Like where are my funding sources? Because I can, I do bridge those gaps and yet I'm not actually an engineer mm -hmm. and I'm not actually a political scientist. So those can be challenges professionally. From the bigger picture question of what are the, the barriers around climate science, climate adaptation, sea level rise, dealing with the threats of hazards such as erosion. I'd say that, you know, there are still huge funding issues. So that remains a challenge. When in the fingerprint research that we did, and we definitely found funding to be one of the things that local governments kept saying was, was really difficult. Um, I'd say in many places, a lack of awareness is a huge challenge. I've worked primarily in Massachusetts and California where that challenge, the, the challenge certainly doesn't exist within most of the people that I'm working with and even the general public, but I've given presentations in Mississippi and Alabama. Um, I recently reached out to, as part of this other research project, someone in Alabama and his response is, we don't talk about that here. Hmm. Um, you know, it is very, very clear that there are parts of the United States where that is not a topic that they talk about. Surprisingly, my collaborator in Israel said, we don't talk about sea level rise. Just we're not doing it yet. Um, you know, so it'll be really interesting to see from this global study where people are talking about it, where people are not talking about it. Um, but I do think that that sometimes myself included, you know, we end up in these silos and we think everybody's, everybody knows. Um, and then you go and look at uh, Yale put out a really interesting study on people's perception of their risk. And, you know, there's a, there's a strong mismatch between the citizens and uh, the scientific community who can say, this is actually your, your risk. So I think that that is an ongoing issue that people need to be aware of and podcasts like this or other things that can get more, um, can, can increase that awareness. Yeah, that's something that was, I was not expecting when I started this kind of a project, which was, it seems like coastal erosion is something 
that we can see so immediately now. And yet there is that kind of lag, I guess, in these larger scale studies. So I'm so excited that you're undertaking this kind of global study. And I guess one of the questions I've thought about, which I would love to hear your thoughts on, is what kind of visualizers get people's attention? So you said you did work in California. I mean, in California, we get entire cliffs collapsing into the sea. We get highways collapsing into the sea. We get homes. In other areas, other sandy areas, the coastal erosion might look different or be experienced differently. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on how those kind of visualizations affect people's perception of coastal erosion. You know, that's a fascinating question. And actually, I wish my colleague Brent Chamberlain were here because his research is much more focused on how effective different visualization mm -hmm. techniques are specifically related to sea level rise. Um, so I'm like, Brent, come on in here. <laughs> um, but since he's not here, I I can say that, you know, I, I think it, I, I can say that it really depends on which people and who you're talking about as terms of which types of visualizations are gonna be more effective. You know, I, and I tend to be a rational science oriented person. And so when I see a chart or a graph, I go, oh, I understand that. And that's really helpful to me. Mm -hmm. um, but there are a lot of people who deal much better with a story, you know, and it's not actually a visualization, but it's a, a narrative story that talks about what was here in the past mm -hmm. or, you know, really a story that can help and help to highlight um, people's negative experiences, the loss of those homes, mm -hmm. you know, and then there's a variety of art type projects that people have done where they will put yarn or other decorative pieces in order to show where the high tide mark or the high line mark during a certain flood event has occurred. Mm -hmm. um, when I was in Massachusetts, one of the things that we did with Hull is we did visualizations of future sea levels on public buildings. So we took like the local school and the local library and the local post office and we showed um, and then we linked it up with Google Earth so that if somebody were on Google Earth, they could go and see that. Um, so there are lots of different types of visualizations. And I think in reality, we need all of those. Mm -hmm. um, it's not just a matter of one approach, but finding bringing together. There's no silver bullet. I think that it's a matter of bringing together all of these different types of stories. Yeah, I love that. I mean, especially because I feel like I work in the field of stories, you know, <laughs> how we how we connect those those things that we see, like living somewhere for 30, 40 years and knowing what the tides look like there and sort of tracking those changes yourself, being like, we've never seen this high of a tide or, you know, this building that we thought was going to be here for 100 years is now at risk. So it's, it's amazing to make that leap then to, like you said, things like Google images or, you know, these visualizations that you're working with, because it is that kind of uh, interdisciplinary work that really makes those connections. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I mean, as we improve our ability to create virtual realities, mm -hmm. I think that's another tool that will be really interesting to see 
you know, virtual reality experiences at the Creativity Museum or the Exploratorium or the Bay Area Discovery Museum, all these places where people, fingers crossed post-COVID, <laughs> will be gathering and able to, to learn. Um, so I think that those are also places where we can think about putting educational future tools as well as stories of the present. Yeah. So out of curiosity, just in your work in California, is there anything that you saw as being especially acute in terms of coastal erosion or just thinking very specifically about how California has been dealing with or plans on dealing with coastal erosion? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I mean, California, I'd say collectively, California is really progressive. Mm -hmm. um, and yet that doesn't mean there aren't places for improvement. Some of the things that I think California, and I should say, you know, I say California, sometimes it's going to be region specific. So, you know, I think Measure AA, which is a parcel tax that the nine Bay Area um, counties voted on and approved as a way of funding conservation and restoration of wetlands mm. is a really amazing and progressive action that I think will help to restore the San Francisco Bay and help to deal with issues of erosion within the Bay itself. Um, the Resilient California website is a helpful tool for people mm. to go and look and understand what different places are doing. Um, so there's some really positive things that are happening in California. The Coastal Protection Agency has, um, th they have certain requirements for communities to design zoning and regulations. And so that's another tool that I think is going well in California. Um, the Delta Stewardship Council has a lot of really fascinating science work. Uh, one of the things that I think they're doing really well is focusing on vulnerable communities mm -hmm. and bringing the issue to light that this is not just a privileged person's problem, um, but that it really is a problem that, that hits all of the different groups. And that uh, actually one of the things that we found in our, in our research is that vulnerable populations are often let out, left out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And that uh, not surprisingly, populations that have historically been underrepresented in policy settings and who have historically been marginalized in these contexts continue to have these problems. Um, so I thought the Delta Stewardship Council's work was really good in, in bringing that vulnerable communities population and highlighting that. Um, you know, on the other side, some of the work that I'd say is, I, I think there's a really big challenge between being progressive and therefore using a lot of science and using that to make informed decisions and going too far mm -hmm. uh, and almost being alarmist or too early on. Uh, you know, I don't know all the specifics, but there's been some controversy around Stinson Beach and oh. regulations there saying that, you know, homes, homes that are at risk in the future shouldn't be allowed to be rebuilt even now. And I think that that's, it, it, it's hard to know when the timing of future sea level risks should be included in today's decision-making. And so I think that that's an area where California may almost be going too far mm -hmm. um, and that they might um, 
the, the, the perhaps finding a, a better middle ground and saying, we can hold off on that decision for 10 or 15 years. Let's track the data and see what's actually happening with sea level rise before we make such a restrictive decision. That's so interesting. Yeah. And especially thinking about Stinson Beach area. I mean, that's one of the most popular Northern California beaches potentially because it's yeah. in the Point Reyes area. So it's another thing that I've been interested in is like, you know, a super popular beach in a protected area is going to get a lot of attention. And like you were talking about with policy, you know, there are a lot of factors that draw attention to a particular coastal area that aren't necessarily how much at risk it is. So it kind of complicates, it seems like, those future projections or how you maneuver that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, um, you know, I mean, I think that's an ongoing policy challenge and um, something that, that we all need to continue to grapple with is how do we make sure that all places and not just one are being considered or being looked at and being thought about. And then just out of personal curiosity, is there a favorite part of the California coastline that you have? You've lived in the Bay Area for a bit and a lot of coastal places. Is there anywhere that you just absolutely love to go to? That's that's a great question. I mean, I, I, I loved the coast all up and down from Monterey up. Um, I spent a little bit of time in Eureka and it's all beautiful. Yeah. Really, I love the variety of ecosystems that you see in that range. Um, you know, I think the, the misty experience of it is part of what I really love and miss. Um, trying to think the elephant seals and oh, yeah. what's the name of that state park is it in more southern california no, no i have um, no idea let's see if i can find it really quickly <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is interesting um because I also am from, you know, East Coast, Boston area, the coastal setting of California is just so different from anything I've ever experienced. And I also missed the fog. That's the thing that I love is like, you know, we get those beautiful foggy days out on the East Coast, you get that similar, just huge rolling uh, cloud of fog coming in. <laughs> but then the hiking into the mountains and having things like mountain lions and those huge, beautiful, like wildflowers and valleys is just so unlike anything that I've experienced on the East Coast. So it's been, it's been interesting for me also to kind of think about, you know, how I've experienced or thought about coastal erosion in the past versus going to a new setting, things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Southern California talks about coastal erosion more than Northern California, you know, and a lot of that seems to be a matter of how much beach there is mm -hmm. relative to how much cliffy, rocky, um, and baylands there are. 
you know, and so I, I've seen reports about coastal erosion out of Southern California, but not as much out of Northern California. By the way, it's Ana Nueva State Park. Um, so if you're looking for an amazing place to go, it's really, they're just spectacular. It's a really cool, cool spot along the coast. Yeah, thank you for looking that up. <laughs> thank you, Google Maps. I have to, I'm like, elephant seals, California, Google Maps. <laughs> we love those mapping services, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I guess just to kind of wrap up today, is there anything that you think will be kind of the plan for the future or just that kind of look into the future, like, what are people really thinking is going to be the most immediate thing? What's the way forward? What can people expect or also, you know, try to get involved in? That's a great question. You know, I, I think that in the near term, we really need to focus on the things that take long periods of time to do. And that's one of the reasons I think Measure AA is great is that 50 years from now, it will be too hard to restore wetlands. Hmm. But if we restore wetlands today, they have real hope of keeping up with sea level rise and becoming a habitat for in perpetuity. You know, and so I think getting involved in some of that restoration effort is really important. I think that helping to provide voice to all populations is something that's really important, um, you know, and almost leveraging climate adaptation as a way to right or alter wrongs of the past and mm-hmm. uh, put places on a better track and trajectory. So I think those are some immediate things, you know, climate change is happening slowly, but it's not happening it's happening right now, um, you know, but where we're going to be in 50 years really depends on what choices we make today. And uh, similarly, I think, you know, using that science to understand what is most most at risk, what are the things that we really um, want to keep out of future sea levels uh, would also be a really important thing. So when we're citing, um, you know, citing a new stormwater plant or citing a wastewater treatment plant, certain things that we don't want to, that we want to have longer lifespans on. I think it's really important to be thinking more forward looking. Yeah, that's something I love about your work and this kind of environmental planning in general is how to work with the environments that are there or knowledges of those environments that people have had for a very long time and kind of work with uh, natural ecologies and how they are and not necessarily, you know, trying to think about what we can learn from that already and incorporate into the plans instead of trying to kind of place a plan upon an area. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I think that that's really important is to recognize and understand the ecology of the place and, and use that to the advantage of the site. Mm-hmm. One other thing that I should say, this is actually my growing piece of research that I'm working on, but I think something that's really important is that there's a lot of stuff hidden under mm-hmm. the ground. And we often think of sea level rise and erosion as surface problems. 
you know, something that's going to happen to the beaches, something that's going to happen to our homes. I think it's really important to recognize there's a fair amount of research looking at as sea levels rise, the groundwater table will rise. And that then means that all of the things we've buried, so mm-hmm. all of the pipes that we've buried, all of, um, we're currently looking at all of the Superfund sites that we've buried and forgotten about. What is the sea level rise going to mean for that? So I think that's a really interesting hidden piece that we're going to start to see more science around in the near term. Yeah, that's so interesting. I haven't even thought about that myself, but then you think about the news stories coming out of like, you know, drills or things abandoned on the on the near coastal areas. And you're completely correct. That's going to be a huge thing in coastal erosion or dealing with sea level rise in the future that it's easy not to think about because it's kind of in that sea area that feels more buried so exactly yeah I mean what what is coastal erosion gonna reveal these you know places that were that are eroding like what, what's what was under there in the past so yeah. it'll be sort of a, a different way of looking at the past too which will be really interesting yeah that's amazing and thank you so much for coming on today and explaining you know what you work in and giving this amazing insight into this issue that we've talked about, you know, some people are very aware of and other people know parts of or, you know, want to learn more about. So thank you for coming on and giving all this amazing information. My pleasure. Thank you for doing this. And I look forward to seeing what comes of the podcast series. Yeah, thank you. And I will link any of the information that you've talked about in the podcast if people are interested. So. Great. (laughs) Many thanks to the Belinsky Foundation and the Belinsky Fellowship at Bodega Bay Marine Lab for providing the funding that made this series possible.